Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 197, The Beginning of the Final Solution. Last time, Admiral Yamamoto, commander of Japan's combined fleet, was currently working out detailed plans to launch a combination air and submarine attack against the United States Pacific Fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor. As the plans formed, Takeo Yoshikawa, pretending to be a part of the Japanese consulate, spied on the Americans, gathering information on warships, planes, and details of the harbor itself. Japan's war with the United States was coming. On the other side of the world, war had already erupted full force on June 22, 1941, as Nazi Germany invaded Stalin's Soviet Russia. We have already covered that Hitler hoped to quickly beat down the USSR, Churchill's last hope. At least, that's how Hitler thought of it. But there was another reason for the strike east, or rather another goal, that was to be achieved alongside Operation Barbarossa. As Hitler pictured the coming of the end of the war by beating Russia, it was time to get on with the extermination of the lesser races, those that had tried in vain to keep Germany from its greatness. As he told his generals a few months before his three million soldiers invaded Soviet Russia, this is a war of annihilation. There was to be ruthless and energetic action against Bolsheviks, agitators, saboteurs, and the Jews, as each town was taken. As such, unique military squadrons of the SS elite corps Einsatzgruppen would follow behind the attacking soldiers, gather up like-minded locals, and collect Communist Party officials and Jews with a view to killing all of them. As Barbarossa was launched, an order went out to the Einsatzgruppen to kill all adult male Jews. This was shortly widened to all Jews. By December of that year, some one-half million Jews would have been shot. But just one month into the attack east, those around Hitler decided the elimination of the Jews was happening much too slowly. Hermann Goering, Hitler's principal deputy, told his staff to prepare a comprehensive plan for carrying out the desired final solution of the Jewish question. In September, the staff believed they hit upon the best procedure, as hundreds of people were placed into a chamber in Auschwitz, Poland, as cyanide gas was vented in. More on this soon, and in great detail, when I have the stomach to cover the Holocaust. Word of these atrocities soon reached London. As early as the summer of 1941, British military intelligence was decrypting German radio orders of the Einsatzgruppen's work. 
Churchill went on the radio on August 24th and said, Whole districts are being exterminated. Scores of thousands, literally scores of thousands of executions in cold blood are being perpetrated by the German police troops on the Russian patriots who defend their native soil. Since the Mongol invasion of Europe, there has never been methodical, merciless butchery on such a scale, or approaching such a scale. We are in the presence of a crime without a name. Of course, he left out that most of the victims were Jewish. The world wasn't ready for that, and sadly, many would not be as concerned that the victims were Jewish, as we will see. The United States government already knew of the Nazis' mercy killings, as they called it, of mental defectives. And as 1941 wound down, detailed, reliable reports came in about what was happening to the Russian Jews. One briefing to Roosevelt read, There is no question but that the SS units are killing the Jews in many of the localities which are occupied in Russia. The normal procedure on taking over a city is to establish local commandos, check over the inhabitants, segregate the Jews, shoot them. To a degree, and this is just old-fashioned politics, as many of the isolationists had branded the interventionalists as Jews, or those paid off or controlled by Jewish organizations, the White House also did not release the startling information it was given. As for some of those in the State Department, they made no bones about their anti-Semitism, and hence lack of concern for what was going on behind the front lines in Poland and the wider Eastern Europe. However, in the face of all this silence, the CBS journalist William Shire, back from Germany, was on a speaking tour, and he told the crowds of the Nazis' program to exterminate the mentally handicapped through mercy killings. But also, there were other Nazi programs whose goal was the extermination of the Polish people. Shire predicted in his speeches that Nazi Germany would go on to kill four or five million Polish Jews. However, his audience was simply unable to wrap their heads around such cruelty on such a scale. As has been covered previously, but more detail will be given here, during the weekend of June 21st to the 22nd, 1941, Prime Minister Churchill was at his estate, Checkers. Both London and Washington had repeatedly sent warnings to Stalin to prepare for a German invasion. Stalin, not wanting to believe such a thing, convinced himself that the Western capitalists were trying to maneuver him into provoking Hitler. As for the buildup of German troops along the newly created German-Soviet border, Stalin, like some others, believed that this was just a gesture to pressure Stalin into giving Hitler more favorable trading terms. Churchill went to bed that June 21st with the standing order that he was not to be woken unless Britain was being invaded. As such, it was not until later in the morning of June 22nd that he was informed of Germany's invasion of the USSR. Right away, he had a large cigar placed on a silver tray, no less, sent to his weekend guest, Foreign Minister Anthony Eden. 
The accompanying card read, The Prime Minister's compliments, and the German armies have invaded Russia. Of course, very few in London believed this latest phase of the war would last more than a few weeks, maybe months, at the outside. But Churchill let it be known that despite everything he had said about communism, and Stalin, and this list is considerable, he would do everything he could to help the now beleaguered USSR. Most importantly, London had just been given more time. The one precious and priceless commodity that no moving or eloquent speech or factory worker could impart. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Across the Atlantic, FDR was also given the news. Right away, his eyes widened and a grin overtook his face. To the president's thinking, Hitler had just made his first big political miscalculation. Again, no one, well, almost no one in Washington, believed that the Red Armies would stand up to the Wehrmacht for long. But the president believed, or rather hoped, that if the Russians could hold out until winter, then the German vice on Europe may begin to loosen. And this could mean that Germany's attention on the Atlantic would slacken as well. Perhaps the time had come to increase pressure on the German Navy, hopefully provoke it to attack, which would allow the United States to declare war and finally launch an attack in Europe, while much of Hitler's armies were heading towards Moscow. FDR considered his options, given the new game board in front of him. Yet Secretary of the Navy, Knox, and Secretary of War, Stimson, met the President more than halfway. On June 23rd, they had both worked on a letter together, which was on the President's desk the same day. Knox wrote, The best opinion I can get is that it will take anywhere from six weeks to two months for Hitler to clean up on Russia. We must not let three months go by without striking hard. The sooner, the better. Admiral Stark, Chief of Naval Operations, joined in by writing, We should immediately seize the psychological opportunity presented by the Russian-German clash and announce and start escorting merchant ships. Immediately. And yet, 
having this new player on the board, though not of Russia's choosing, changed much for Roosevelt, the politician, and Churchill, the military leader. If Germany indeed soon controlled Soviet Russia, as far as the Urals, then Hitler would have access to most of Russia's industry, mines, oil fields, grain, and its people, who would most certainly become Hitlerite slaves. Nazi Germany would have what it needed for a long war, thereby, to a degree, canceling out what the United States could bring to the picture. But of a more immediate concern, with Russia out of the way, the Japanese would then be free to attack either to the north, into Siberia, or to the south, into territories held by the Western powers. Suddenly, the picture was less rosy. And so, FDR would not yet agree with his cabinet to have U.S. warships escort supply ships, or add Russia to those able to get Lend-Lease material. And the New York Times summed up the president's thinking to a degree. Stalin is on our side today. Where will he be tomorrow? We would be in a fine state of affairs if we succeeded in landing a hundred bombers on Russian soil just to have Stalin make a treacherous peace with Germany. It was well within Roosevelt's cautious character to wait and see, but Churchill had no such thoughts. The Prime Minister considered. With United States forces already along the coasts of Newfoundland and Greenland, would it be such a leap to ask the Americans to guard Iceland, bringing them ever closer to Europe and the war. There were currently some 20,000 British and Canadian troops stationed in Iceland, and they were needed for the fight in North Africa. And as there were German submarine wolf packs just off its coast, it would only be a matter of time before a shooting war developed between the Germans and the United States. FDR had already sent out the destroyer Niblack to assess what the Americans would need there. Just before Operation Barbarossa commenced, Knox and Stimson had harangued the president to accept responsibility for Iceland's defense. FDR thought about it for almost a month and then gave the order. During the first week of July, the first contingent of Marines landed in Iceland. FDR told the American people on July 8th of what was happening but that it was just another part of the defensive shield protecting the east coast of the United States. But the legal niceties had to be covered as well. So Harry Hopkins' legal aide, Oscar Cox, was given the task of looking into it, and reported back that there was nothing in the Neutrality Acts of 1939 that stopped U.S. ships from transporting men and material to any American bases recently acquired. FDR then told the Navy to prepare for convoy escort. Another step had been made by the President of his sideways approach to entering the war. And yet the American press, nor the American people, were fooled. As for the latter group, they were still all over the place in terms of the war. The polls still showed that the American people were against coming into the war unless attacked first but their belief was stronger than ever that Britain, China, and Russia should be given increased aid. And 80% of them thought it was just a matter of time before the United States 
got actively involved. But that 80% also stipulated, just not right now. But for all of those moves, Hitler still did not rise to the bait. On July 9th, he reminded Admiral Reeder to hold back his navy from attacking American ships. The upshot was, for the rest of the summer of that year, not one ship was sunk. FDR met with Harry Hopkins again to discuss the various issues before them. How to supply the Soviet Union, if it could stay in the fight. The limited goods America had that could be sent to the tripartite pact's current victims. The president decided it was time for him and Churchill to meet. Again, Hopkins would be sent over to discuss ways the Soviets and Britons could beat the Germans with American aid. But FDR had one more thing for Hopkins to give the Prime Minister. Tearing out a map of the Atlantic Ocean from a nearby National Geographic magazine, the President dotted a line at the top of Greenland. The line then turned south in a wide semicircle, which stuck out 200 miles east of Iceland, then came around Iceland's southern coast. Then it went due south through the Azores and off the page. Hopkins was told to tell Churchill that this now constituted the U.S. neutrality zone, as in this is what the U.S. Navy would be patrolling. It was practically the entirety of the Atlantic Ocean. Hopkins boarded a B-17 flying fortress on July 13, 1941. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.